Oh, you have to give me permission to record. I just started. We're good. I'll send you this stuff. Okay, great. <laughs> All righty, guys. Well, welcome to Facebook and welcome to everyone else. We are doing a very special episode today with Shades of ABA and the Do Better Pod. We have today with us Dr. Megan Miller and Joe Smith. Hello. Hi, guys. Hey, guys. So today we're going to be talking all about the ethics code and how that is in relation to how practitioners have just developed uh, within the field and what's kind of been going on with cancel culture and how the ethics code can contribute to that as well. Um, so again, myself and our lovely Shades of ABA co-host, uh, Tiana Moore is here today. Hello. And let's just get into it, guys. Um, so <laughs> ethics code and the ABA culture. Let's just first start there. Uh, Joe, you have came from a definitely a different background. Um, into ABA as a BCBA, you ca you came into the field as a teacher, correct? Correct, correct. I was a special ed teacher for about 10 years before I found out about ABA. And uh, wow, what a difference in the world. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I started out as a teacher in um, the culture between the between the school divisions and um, what it's like to work for um, in the field of applied behavior analysis is completely different. And um, uh, even the ideas and the philosophies and the values are different as well. Can you so. explain some of those differences? Yeah, 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 yeah. That may not be yeah, too yeah. aware. Yeah, like, um, so, for as far as the culture of a special ed teacher or just teachers in general, um, we wear a badge of honor of kind of the idea that we're going to work um, as much as possible. Like we work on the weekends, we work late into night. Um, but coming into the field, which and this just might be just because I'm brand new to the field too as well is we have a much better understanding of what it is to give us um, so to give us some time for ourselves to um, at the end of the night to allow us to have some self-care time to decompress and to um, and focus on family and friends. Um, and that's not what it was like at, as a teacher. Teacher is like, we go to school, we work, and then after school, we go home and we work uh, again until late into the night. So that's just one of the differences. Um, and I felt like, I feel like in the field here, um, we're a little bit more isolated, but we also seek out guidance and support a lot more in our field. Um, just because we know if we don't, seek it out, uh, we're just not gonna get it. Um, and as a teacher, I know like collaboration is a big component of the school culture. So those are just some of the differences now. 
When you were coming into the field and getting started with your practicum experience as, I don't know if you did a technician role or had a BCBA supervising you, what was your thoughts as to, um, were they open to maybe some of the different philosophies that you were bringing forth at the time? Um, no, I mean, part of my supervision and just coming up, um, I was lucky. I was very lucky, I think, because uh, my supervision and going through the coursework was completely different from the culture at navigation too. So I started with Megan um, back in the day. <laughs> and um, we that were- unfair. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was unfair because I got experience to teach at um, a whole bunch of, uh, different other philosophies. So I was exposed that way, but the coursework and um, the ideas through the traditional, you know, um, school and supervision is very isolated as far as they taught you to the task list. Um, so that was a little, that was some of the differences between um, supervision and coming up as an RBT in the field. And then I was on top of this, I was working full-time as a teacher too. <laughs> so I got to experience it all. Nice, very nice. So one of the things, the reasons why we brought this up was Megan, you and I were having a conversation um, just about how our, our field is. And there's definitely a difference between our field and what our field is going through right now, right? Um, and what our field was or where we were six months and beyond, you know, from now. So you've been in the field for quite a long time. Can you speak to that change? <laughs> Don't tell people that. Um, yeah, so I, um, when I first started in the field, none of the things that are talked about right now were talked about which is part of the problem. <laughs> so <laughs> anything relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion, or any social justice issues, um, multidisciplinary, or anything around like cultural humility, or anything in those realms was not, um, it wasn't discussed. And it was almost the opposite. Like, we don't need to worry about those things. This is an objective science. Behavior is behavior. And we have our, our black and white ethics code to help. Uh, sometimes there will be great decisions that need to be made, but you must adhere to this code above and beyond anything else. So that, again, really, I'm, this is nothing new for people nowadays, but that we didn't even think about back when I was in school in like the early 2000s about, huh, I wonder what that would mean culturally. <laughs> that like this ethics code was developed by a bunch of, you know, white folks and, and mostly men at the time. And uh, it, it might not be representative of all the family cultures that we'll encounter here in the United States or abroad. That wasn't even like, we were so focused on, here's the code and we must follow it, right? Um, so, and actually when I first started, the code wasn't even enforceable. It was just something you had, you know, you tried to aim to uphold and the, there wasn't even a requirement to take ethics class in your coursework and there was no ethics CE requirements either. So I was really surprised in 2010, 
I think. I did a presentation at Milestones. It's a conference in Ohio. And um, I was so excited to do an ethics presentation. And I had the, I asked like every, the 10 people that came to my talk, which is so funny because now that ethics CEs are required, you like can't get into an ethics talk usually, right? Um, when live conferences happen. But right. so <laughs> this was before they required the ethics CEs. So it was 2010 or earlier than that. I can't remember, but there were 10 people in there. And I just asked everyone, you know, what they learned about in ethics because the ethics courses weren't required either. No one had read the first version of Dr. Bailey's book. Very few people had even read any articles on ethics, period. Some of them didn't even know we had an ethics code. So there have been some really great changes over the past wow. few years that like at least, you know, we by the time y'all entered the field, they were, they, we'd at least moved that far. That's amazing because if you're saying 2010, like that is literally not far um, removed from when I entered the field and became active and became a tech and just began learning these about the science and just about it all. So it's, that is really mind boggling, that that is even the case. Um, yeah, it, it could have been 2008 <laughs> or nine, but still it was like that range. So it's still this, you know, 10 year, That's, 10 to 13 years ago, but yeah. You know, we talk about, we talk about this change and we talk about this inflexibility, right? Let's bring ACT into it because we all know I love ACT, right? <laughs> so <laughs> the inflexibility of our mindset and our thoughts that we were having, but the field the field in relations to ethics and the field in relations to treatment, right, is so new. If we are just now within 10 years required people to take an ethics code, those BCBAs that are supervising a lot of newer BCBAs were not required to take any ethics course when they were first coming up. So I can only imagine why people talk about their negative supervision experiences for a wide variety of reasons, because a lot of the times it sounds like those BCBAs that have, you know, been behaviorists or, you know, whatever before even the credentialing came out, but also those BCBAs that were becoming BCBAs around 2008, 2010 ish era weren't required to do a lot of the things that we're saying we need to do better at, you right. know? And that's what's kind of going on in the field is that we're saying, well, why don't we have these things? But then there's a huge chunk of people like, well, let's slow down because we just came out with this other thing, <laughs> you know? We just made, you know, ethics CEUs a requirement. And that's, that's interesting. That's interesting to me. Yeah, I will say I went to FSU and we did have an ethics class because, you know, Dr. Bailey, but it was uh, rare at the time. Um, one of the things I was thinking about, Adrian, that we talked about too, with like the differences for um, behavior analysts and Joe with teaching, what did you all have for teaching? Did you take ethics courses? Did you have anything around like diversity, equity, and inclusion? Um, did this kind of stuff come up? Yeah, so... We had an ethics course. Um, no, we did not talk about anything 
ever, ever until 2020 about diversity, equity, and inclusion um, and how the ethics code can hinder that and how the ethics code hinders a lot of things as practitioners. Um, particularly <laughs> my ethics code teacher, you know, the person, and I asked Joe about the personality of some of the practitioners he was running into, but you know, obviously you were <laughs> over there with Dr. McMillis. <laughs> and he had Claire, he had Claire Ellis. Who I had Claire, my, my favorite BCBs. And Lori. So. <laughs> yeah, I had, I had a green of the so. Well, Joe, you know, you are like the 1%, maybe? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was super, I, I think I've never shared this uh, story anyways with you, Megan, or anyone. But the, ha the how I found navigation is through a Google search. And it was like one of the top, like, um, research, like one of the top, my top uh, choices. And I was like, let me look at the website and just go through it. And I was like, oh, I love this company. Let me just go ahead and apply. So I was like, by chance, like it popped up, but it happened for the right, right reasons. Yeah, I'm very uh, envious of you. <laughs> very jealous however um you know we talk about the personalities and, and the way we are taught and when we're looking at the ethics code and who's teaching us the ethics code if that teacher is not inclusive if that teacher you know looks at things black and white then I feel like they should not be the ethics code teacher because in one breath, the BACB has one, you know, if we say this, this is what we mean. And we are assuming that the majority of our certificates are going to understand what we say, you know, because the ethics code is very broad in some areas, but very specific in other areas. And so you have this here, right? But then you have how practitioners are interpreting the ethics code, particularly the ethics teachers in our programs. And so how that ties into the personality of practitioners, we as certificates, as new BCBAs are dependent on our supervisors, on our teachers to teach us the best way. And if they are not inclusive, or if they don't know anything about diversity and equitability, or, you know, are interpreting the ethics code in a totally different way, then new BCBAs are also going to follow suit. Because, you know, I always say that's how we were raised, you know, <laughs> I always am like, yeah. I was raised by this person in the ABA field, but my mom raised me and my dad raised me in my personal life. Um, we're really dependent on how we are raised. And I think what we're seeing right now in the field is that we are recognized we were raised wrong. And a lot of the people that are attending these, these trainings, these CEUs, having these open conversations are these newer, fresher-ish BCBAs majority of the time, but the people that really actually need to be listening and actually need to be attending these trainings are those 2008ers 2010ers <laughs> or, or before before that I think we had the um the first that microaggression workshop that we did and there was like 150 people that registered and I didn't look at 
I didn't go look everyone up, but just from knowing a lot of the names, I think there was one person from like the generation of maybe that like got certified or started working in the field in like the seventies. Right. So like, that's it. And everyone else, you know, was from like the people that are in the field newer now. And just in general, like I went to Ohio state for my PhD in 2012 to 2015. I graduated with my undergrad in 2004 and my master's in 2007. Ohio State's very committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion anyway, but the difference in like and everything around that topic when I went to Ohio State from when I was at under like an undergrad learning about those things and like how fast the stuff moves. And then even when I graduated in 2015, I think at the time, you know, um, when I started in 2012, it was like when, when we would talk about um, LGBT, right? And that was 2012. And then by 2015, I think it was LGBTQIA, you know, and they're like, it, it keeps growing because we keep learning more about different people's perspectives and what's, go- what's happening for them. So it's something that you have to keep up with like daily <laughs> by the minute, right? And if you, so like the folks that are in the field from the seventies and, and whatnot, again, they're the ones that were training us that this stuff doesn't even matter for one. So like, I, I feel really bad saying it, but this is just my opinion. I almost think at some point we, we just have to kind of wait for some of these people to retire. I've been saying that for months. mm -hmm. And it's unfortunate that we even have to bring that out and like have that mindset, but some people really aren't willing to learn, willing to open up, willing to like grow with the world and society. So, but I do want to say this one thing. So ABA has been around for a little bit and it's really interesting because I was just doing like some quick little Google searches. So nurse, nursing, nurses, the practice of being a nurse um, or nightingales became um, a thing, we'll say in 1854. Just looking at like how they processed and according to Google, I didn't do an in-depth search, but they didn't have a code of ethics, just a long, just a simple code of ethics until um, the mid 1950s, which is amazing because even um, within looking at that, it, it doesn't seem like it's going, it's going through that process of including diversity, equity, inclusion, and which is mind boggling because they're dealing with people across different spans of cultures and um and sexual orientations and just different bands of people. And then looking at like being a lawyer, there's um, actually looking into being a lawyer became a thing in the 1700s. Their their code of ethics didn't become, didn't pass until 1995. And that's a <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, I, and because and because it's available, like I'm going through it, and I'm like, okay, there, there. Again, nothing dealing with like the um, nothing dealing with diversity. Nothing like there's nothing in these in these professions that come across and talk about like the need and the importance of seeing people for who they are rather than just having these black and white practices. Uh, and it's, it's just insane in that AB, the, the field is lining up right along with everyone else essentially. 
because this is just where we're (laughs) (laughs) that is disturbing because (laughs) for many other reasons that we can talk about in a different episode but that's disturbing (laughs) um so do we think that we're asking for too much then are we are we no i don't think so but that's just me personally like we're dealing with a whole host of different individuals who encounter life differently based on their culture their race their sexuality their financial stability or lack thereof and we need to be thinking about those pieces as we're working with them because not everyone is going to be able to provide every everything that we see that our own feelings and in our own experiences have allowed us to think are necessary for others that's just me though yeah joe i would love your input both as a teacher and his wife as a social worker so i know we've talked before about like differences that exist in those areas so like adrian said are we asking for too much based on you know i'd love to hear you tie it in with those two things if you don't mind yeah um i don't think we're asking too much but just i mean have we ever as a country or just as a like a field ever changed our ethics within like a few years now um, and I can't think of any time in history where we just on a dime within the years, like five, 10 years switched and um, did anything differently. Um, I think that's the problem that we have um, just looking at back, I mean, throughout our history, as even just as a country that uh, it takes years to develop and to change for the better and to include more people, uh, to be more inclusive um, and more accepting of other, other differences. It is, I think it's not, I mean, it's not a lot, but in the other sense, it kind of is because we just need time for everyone to get, just get back on, get on board. And it takes time to make that change, which stinks. And I think we could do, uh, I mean, as a society, we would do so much better if we could just come together and work together to make a change quicker. But your wife as a social worker has this stuff, right? Well, and what's interesting is like my wife as a social worker, um, right now she's um, a social worker for um, a hospice company. Um, So she does hospice and um, what, what's interesting is at, at the end of your life, no matter what race, what sex or gender, you're going to die. Like it, you're in that final state. Doesn't matter where you're at in life, how well you did. I mean, it's the final, this is your final stopping point, which is interesting. Just to, I mean, just to sit and think and it's like it doesn't matter you know how different you are it doesn't matter there's no discrimination so why is there any why should we live our life any differently 
or well, unfortunately the systems are set up yeah yeah and, and unfortunately the system <laughs> yeah but it, it, it's just interesting like um yeah I, I mean and my wife can talk so much better I mean so much more about that on her side of what she sees um but just even talking with her and it, it, it's interesting because she, like I'm working on like you know making a learner grow and she's just caring for them at the end of their life and it's just a such a different um it, we're at there's just the people who are at different points of their lives so so yeah. your wife's a, a um, social worker for the geriatric geriatric population yeah yeah well okay. yeah like for so she does hospice so um, okay. when they're at, so whenever they are at the, whenever the, de- the hospital deems that they need hospice services, uh, to make themselves comfortable and to, um, have a team around them to work with the families, to transition them to the, uh, to transition them back into homes just for the, or even in a hospice, um, hospital just to make them feel comfortable and make sure that they are set up for, you know, the rest of the days. And that could be any age, right? It's like people that might have terminal cancer or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So there's like 30 year olds that there, um, 30 year olds, there's all the way up to like 90, hundred year old, uh, patients. But it's funny because like at, at the end, like I said, like at the end, it's like, it does matter. I mean, it's all the same. So I think one of the things that um, first, first and foremost, I want to commend your wife. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can't do what she does. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be able to, to do what she does either. And, and people say that about our field too, and the yeah. portion of that's working with autism. Um, and I'm like, listen, <laughs> I could do this, but I probably could not do what your wife does. So let her know yeah. that Shades of ABA says, <laughs> you know, whatever self-care she needs, let us know. <laughs> um, sorry, my, my dog needs attention right now. <laughs> um, but one of the things, you know, you touch on is that, yes, you know, we are, we all die the same, you know, we're all, you know, six feet under or however you do it is, is how you do it, you know? But I think if we all had that mindset and I mean, we all as in governmental systems, the BCB, you know, practitioners, (laughs) things like that, bringing it back to ABA, then we wouldn't be having the problems that we're having maybe, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And so when we're, we're living we got to live with whatever systems we got to deal with and I think that's that's where you know the the play kind of comes in um but one of the things that was stated is you know we're, we're talking about our ethics code and the lack of DEI and the the lack thereof right and we talk about those practitioners that have you know been in the field for 20 30 plus odd years and they're not attending these trainings So when we're talking about, you know, yeah, we all go the same, but while we're here, we need to be active and present and, you know, do whatever we need to do. How do we encourage, 
you know, those older practitioners to be attending these trainings, you know, and with the ethics code coming into play, I feel like they use that as their like weapon. They're like, well, this is what the ethics code says. And this is <laughs> and what we I'm don't have to do anything else. Nothing more. Exactly. And so how do we, how do we get around that? Well, obviously a big one is going to be getting the ethics code changed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so hopefully I know there's some revisions in the works. So that'll be good to see what those changes are because I mean, again, going back when I was first started, we didn't have to take an ethics class. Most places didn't offer those. We didn't have to take ethics CEs. You barely saw an ethics presentation. So when the BACB makes changes, people shift, right? So um, I think there's been some good interactions and um, additional people brought on to like work at the BACB that are helping with that. But mm -hmm. um, people... I, I don't have specific names to say, but I've definitely seen lots of posts on Facebook, especially calling out the BACB for certain things. And then they are responsive to that. So that's encouraging. Um, but it, I guess, you know, will remain to be seen how much changes there. What do you think, Tiana? I, I guess like, I'm, I'm a, I am excited to see these new changes, to see how things are developing. It is just a little frustrating that it has taken the most, like more recent events for people to see the changes that need to happen. Like, why are we questioning whether or not are we asking too much? Everyone, we're just asking that everyone is treated, you know, with some respect, some, some courtesies that everyone is considered in the fact that we have to ask or even question what should we be doing this is this or how fast should we move like are we asking for too much in this point in time do how much patience do we need to have do we can do we continue to be patient or should you know do, are we going to put our foots on our neck and push for more and so yes it's exciting but also it's frustrating being a person who is affected um greatly to like within just in just in a in just a, a, the mental headspace too not even just like we're not even going to get into career or day-to-day -day, just like mentally recent events how it really affects a person and knowing that I also have to put in put on this like professional mask and not quite question or be careful with how I question the entity that is governing my my uh, profession the my I have to be careful with how I question to some degree careful because I'm not always I'm sometimes I, I hit the gate <laughs> with oh <laughs> I hit the gate running <laughs> before I get before I even think just but still trying to be um courteous to some degree as to how I question the company that I work for even my supervisor just to make sure other people are not uncomfortable so it's just where is I don't know I, I'm just I'm excited for these upcoming changes but also I'm just kind of taken aback that I have to question or it is being questioned are we are we doing too much right now you know yeah, one of the things you said was, um, you know, are we in your example of are we doing too much? You know, how patient do we need to be? 
it reminded me of a situation um, that happened in my my practicum. And so Mm -hmm. it was a family that just wasn't being compliant with attendance or, you know, was having transportation issues. And my supervisor was like, well, let's go back to the ethics code and the service delivery and what that looks like. And I was like, well, it says that we need to do everything we can. And she's like, well, we adjusted the schedule. They weren't they didn't adhere to that. We reduced the hours. They didn't adhere to that. What else are we supposed to do? And so I feel like a lot of practitioners are like, well, the ethics code says this, this is what I did. And they're trying to make it fit into, Mm -hmm. and this is why I'm not violating. But when you have a client that lives in a low income area that has, you're in the middle middle of downtown Detroit, in any metropolitan city, (laughs) the people living in that city are going to have transportation issues. And if anybody knows anything about Detroit, (laughs) the public transportation system is like, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) right? We have like one little cart that like goes a mile and it's like, look, we have a bus. (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's, It's not a city for public transportation. And so, you know, I just wish that the practitioners that create the ethics code to fit their needs and not using it to what the BACB intended it to be used for as a requirement is where we're getting messed up. Now, do I think that the ethics code can be a lot more specific? Absolutely. You know, I, but I also don't think that the board and the people who were editing the ethics code realized how us as practitioners and certificates were going to interpret things. Yeah, well, that, um, Adrian, (laughs) made me think about, uh, again, back in grad school, even (laughs) the parts about interfering. uh, So I I can't remember if it's section three or four, but you have to identify environmental variables that could interfere with effective intervention. And I definitely remember it's probably even in the first edition of the ethics book that we were trained um, that that meant if like a family didn't want to do the plan that you've come up with, you would terminate services, right? Like how does that promote working within people's (laughs) cultures and like values at all, right? I think they have updated over the years where it's a little bit more clear that you're supposed to like state what the barriers could be so that you can say like, um, this is the recommended intervention. These barriers exist for that intervention to occur. Mm -hmm. Therefore we're doing this, but back, back when I first started in the field, that was not the case. It was like, just you, you know, if you encounter any situations where people don't want to do what you, you say, then you just tell them your ethics code says you have to, and they can either stop services or do what you say. Right. So like talk about some power, (laughs) abuse of power there. Um, And I thankfully never really approached families in that way. We would have gentler discussions about it, but just thinking about like the number of people that probably still practice that way. Um, And and again, it's not only, not in there to have any sort of cultural humility, but it's the opposite. Like, oh, just use the code. <laughs> um, thanks, Tiana said it's 4.07. So I was ready. I knew it was in section three or four. I didn't have it memorized. So 
Yeah, I, I mean, definitely. Oh, go ahead, Joe. No, no, I was just, I was just going to, I mean, I'm sitting here listening and I'm like thinking to myself that, you know, when I was going through my ethics um, coursework, that it almost seems to me like the ethics code is just so broad and it has so many gray areas, like it's not clearly defined, but isn't that what part the ethic code needs to be? So then it could be, so then, I mean, if you have a very black and white line, I, I feel like we would come off so much more harsh. Um, oh, I, I can't do this. This is what it is. But I like the idea that it gives us a little bit more room to interpret. Um, kind of like uh, other documents in countries that have like codes or um, laws that they're a little, little bit more um, written um, broad so then they can be interpreted by another body at once at one point um so like i feel like for us like with ethics code like we only have the, the board and uh, the b the bcba and other than that that's it there's no like other body that kind of like rules over like hey um this is actually what the the people that wrote this it is trying to say, or this is what it should be, or I, you know what I mean? Or am I not making any sense? I understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I get yeah. exactly what you're saying. Mm -hmm. I understand completely. And like, I agree that I, that the broadness is, it does allow for interpretation and it's both good and bad because as Adrian mm -hmm. was stating earlier, you know, supervisors will and will make it their interpretation fit or the the code fit for how they want it mm -hmm. to be within its and so you still get this very wide spectrum of what a code actually may mean versus having just a little bit more guidance as to where, yeah. you know, it really should be. Like where's the middle ground? Because you will have supervisors who say, oh, you can't do this because of the cold. But then another supervisor will go, oh, but we should do this because of the cold. And mm -hmm. it's just like, I interpret it this way because of X, Y, Z. And I interpret it this way because of A, B, C. There, and there's no like, the middle ground is definitely not there. And it, it allows for a lot of different confusions to occur. Which in turn, yeah. I think comes out in practitioners day to day and how practitioners are, you know, um, we only know as much as we know based off of who supervises us, right? Who raises mm -hmm. us in ABA. And so if, if that, again, it goes back to that individual person. Um, and if, if that individual person is rigid and inflexible and all these things we talk about with our kids, right? then you as another BCBA or newer BCBA are going to be this, the same way and interpret it how your supervisor was interpreting it. You know, we see that all the time. You know, people tend to have this similar views as their parents because that's what they're around. That's what their environment is. And up until they get out of that environment is when they start to open their eyes. And that's a very similar situation that I was in, you know, I was working for a company and the company, you know, looking back at it now, 
very rigid, very inflexible. Um, and moving away from that company, I saw how I was rigid and inflexible as a practitioner. And I'm like one of the most open-minded people you'll yeah. ever meet, you know? And I even was like, wow, I have to look back at some of these things. And it, it was even like, is the child imitating when I raise my hand to the right, are they raising their right hand? You know, and we were taught, you know, if if they didn't raise the same right hand, then that's wrong. They're not attending right. They, they don't have the right perspective and you need to force that. Um, and now being out of that environment, I'm like, no, we're not creating robots though. We're creating, you know, we're also not creating human beings, but we're just assisting you know, and, and supporting them and, and teaching them the skills that they need to have, you know, a, as good of a quality life as they, as they want to have, you know, ultimately. Um, and they always look, went back to, well, what does our ethics code say? What does the task list say? And that's how they would justify and rationalize some of their decisions, good or bad. And I just think that speaks to the arrogancy of our field, you know, this ethics code came out and it was required not too long ago, but they took it and they were like, this is the stamp that is going to, you know, separate my field and our science from every other science. And our science is better because of these reasons. And if you don't have these things, then your science is a piece of shit. And if it's even, even if they even say it's science, you know, and I think there's so many different perspectives that I now am able to see now that I'm out of that environment. So many great things being said. Um, I don't even remember who said, or I think it was Tiana, you were talking Tiana and Joe, you were both talking about like the broadness or the black and white. I think that's also one of the difficulties. If anyone has ever seen David Cox, Dr. David Cox, he's a BCBAD and he is an ethicist. He went to school for ethics <laughs> and then he became a behavior analyst. And so he has like a really thorough understanding of just ethics in general. Um, and it was funny because when I first started talking to him, I was like, oh yeah, I did that. I forgot about that. Like I didn't get a degree in it, but in undergrad, I got a philosophy minor that I totally forgot about because I thought I was going to law school. And so I took like philosophy, um, like ethics and all that kind of stuff. So I have like little bits of it that I remember, but I know again, in my, when I first was in the field, we, we went through the code and we learned about the code and we learned about the, like, talk to the person about it or whatever but we didn't really learn anything about ethics and ethical decision-making and, and how, again, the code isn't going to be black and white and it shouldn't be, but how do you, how does it interact and how do you make those decisions and make sure that you're checking your biases and you're not just confirming the decision you want to make because that's the most comfortable decision, but you're actually doing the process to figure out what is the best in the best interest of the consumer, because that's the whole point of the ethics code. Can we say that again? Like, <laughs> say it again, because that's what people need to hear. Checking your own biases. And that's what's happening, is that they're, they're not checking their biases, number one. Number two, 
they're like making the code and the tasks fit their biases. And it, it comes out in the day-to-day. -day. I was just having a conversation with um, Jessica from Arizona ABA, shout out to Jessica. <laughs> um, and we were talking about just, just that and her as a clinical director, why it's so very important that her as the leader needing to open up her practitioner's minds and to check, check themselves, you know? You have that saying like, who's gonna check me boo, right? Like, well, actually <laughs> you need to check yourself and check your own biases, right? Um, and as leaders, we have to model that. So every leader of an ABA company needs, needs to be listening to these latest podcasts, these trainings. And just like we take clinical seriously, we have to take ethics seriously and how that has shaped, shaped us, you know, as a field. So I love that, Megan. I love that. <laughs> I also want to know, Joe, um, I know you said you were at Navigation and maybe Tiana too, you can speak to this. Uh, we keep going back to this arrogancy thing, you know, um, and that's one of the things that's definitely been brought up in the recent months of, well, how do you operationally define racism or, you know, what does the data say? And then the data comes out and then they're all freaking quiet, right? Like, <laughs> So, you know, it doesn't really say that <laughs> my own interpretation. <laughs> right. Um, we talk about the arrogancy and how the ethics code contributed to creating the arrogancy within our field. So I would love to hear from Joe and Tiana about your, if you've had any experiences, I know, Joe, you're at navigation. And yeah. Not be that oh, now acorn help, but. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, uh, it, uh, like, I think what I love about navigation is that it, I mean, like, I, I, like I said, I was brought into a company that, you know, was very solid with ethics and being ethical. And I was really proud of being in a company like that. So my experience, like in navigation was completely different than probably most people in the ABA field. Um, Tina, what was your experience like? Tiana? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, pretty similar to Adrian's. Um, it's at least it was starting out um, with that very black and white, let's fit it into our own little box and what really works for, uh, what will work best for the supervisor at the like the, the the supervisor's perspective um whether it was with pretty much very similar um as i have personally grown um i do try to chip away and i do work very hard on making sure that i'm not as but yes, we're going to encompass the code of ethics, but really looking at it from these other perspectives, a skill that I had to learn on my own. It was not something that was taught for me to do within my, um, my practicum experience. So yeah, it's, yeah. It's difficult to, you know, 
and we're all experiencing this currently, you know, we're, we're going back and we're learning something that, you know, we maybe should have learned a little bit sooner. And we're asking for patience with that. It's difficult to get yourself out of a rigid mindset and more into a broader open mindset. You could always go bigger and then go smaller to go smaller and then bigger. It's always difficult. Um, and that takes time. You know, I, in my development journey, just this last year, um, I've learned so much and there's just things that I wish I knew, <laughs> which we're going to record that episode as well. <laughs> you know, that you, things you wish you knew in the beginning. And one of those things is, you know, how to be more open-minded. You know, we're, we're listening to a lot more autistic voices, um, lately and it's something that I wish we would have been doing sooner and how that in itself is speaks to how arrogant our field is we you know what did the BACB demographics say that like 85 percent or nine almost close to 90 percent of practitioners work in autism but how many of those practitioners has have spoken to an autistic adult about their experiences you know, and our ethics code did not, as broad as it needs to be, like you were saying, you do, I do like it to be broad, but when majority, like a, a large majority of your practitioners in, is working in one population, it's almost like you need a totally separate ethics code specifically for each area, because what we, what has been done to the autistic community in relations to their experiences in ABA is, is tragic. And why is it that we're just now listening to their voices in 2020, but our field was built on the backs, on their backs, right? We, we talk about, you know, just so many different, so many different things, but that's one of the things that has really resonated with me lately is that if we're not listening to autistic voices, but we're doing treatment with them and with their families, then why are we, why are we not? And it, it just speaks to how arrogant our field is. And I don't know if it's because, and I'm sorry, Joe, <laughs> but <laughs> if it's because we had white males, you know, uplifting this field and, and putting that into play. And, you know, we, we weren't diverse. This field was not made for, diversity and inclusion and equitability. That's not what they were thinking about. Yeah. So Tiana, I see your face. <laughs> no, this, this, is just, this, is, this is just one of those moments where I'm like, ah, we did it again. Why, like just in that, in that conversation, in that piece of you stating what is a fact, like ABA, the, the science, this, this profession was developed by white men. Why the, I'm sorry, Joe, no, like, and I'm doing it right now, no offense, but also yeah. why is it that, why do we have to do that piece? Like we're just, we're talking, yeah. we're having polite conversation, but it's also a fact. <laughs> yes. So Adrian, that's just thank, where I took that. <laughs> Tiana, thank yeah. you for pointing that out. I hadn't even like thought about that. So that's a, a great thing to reflect on. Adrian, you said about the, the arrogance with like, that people are listening to autistic voices now, 
but it's the same issue as we've seen with the diversity, equity, and inclusion and anti-racism and everything. Some people are listening to autistic voices and it's sad that it's taken this long to even get some people to listen to them. When I, I just keep throwing it back to my, the olden days, you know, back in early 2000, when I first started, I loved reading it. There were so many uh, there's so many more now, but back then there were certain autistic authors and um, I, I would read their memoirs and their books and things. And I, I distinctly remember in class, both of my like mentor professors saying, how do you even know they're autistic? Why are you reading that? Why are you listening to these people? If they're writing these books, they clearly can't be autistic. Like how ableist is that, right? And, and I, I thought like, oh, maybe that's, um, that was 20 years ago, almost, maybe things have changed. And I posted recently about reading uh, one of the books that I highly recommend by Donna Williams is called Somebody Somewhere and Nobody Nowhere. Nobody Nowhere came first and then Somebody Somewhere came second. And I posted about the Nobody Nowhere book in one of the ABA Facebook groups. And wouldn't you know, one of the only comments I received was from someone who's been in the field for a while and people highly respect and I respect as well. However, the person said, oh, you should check out the like, I don't know, some news piece that was done on, on Donna, um, you know, questioning her diagnosis. And I was just like, really? <laughs> <laughs> like, is this really where we're going to go with this? <laughs> you know, if somebody ever came up to me and questioned my blackness or like like what but like that comment in itself you know like what well, <laughs> that like the arrogant people do this right like <laughs> oh you don't it, it's really amazing how people look at features of an individual whether it's like cognitive ability speech color like just all of these like your overall just um your overall ability and just pinpoint one little thing or a few little things and say oh that doesn't fall in this category you can't be autistic you can't be depressed you oh you you speak or you've done this and you do that you can't be this culture this race like you, you don't relate to that like what how well how do people it's 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 comical that that is a thing that people do that like that we're as practitioners there are people who are saying this person's able to write a book so they can't be autistic you know more to it than that right but you know we we talk about what's currently going on right and and I love the fact of where our field is currently going and definitely um some of the practitioners that are are coming up and their thought process one of the things that I was speaking with another person about was you know social media ABA and the actual ABA that's happening on the ground and the practitioners there, I think are two totally different things. 
I think we we see what we see on social media, right? We see all these trainings, we join all these Facebook groups, but what I'm finding is that I'm also seeing the same people in those Facebook groups that are commenting and coming to the webinars and the trainings and things like that. So we're talking about this whole movement of ABA that is is becoming a lot more inclusive on in, on different levels, right? Everything in relation to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, and that's not just race, that's sexual orientation, that's age, that's autistic voices. It's this whole movement. However, I do remember up until a year ago, I, you know, wasn't well-versed of what was going on on social media and what those opportunities were. My supervisors, you know, didn't, weren't well-versed in it either. So we didn't know about these different trainings and these different webinars. So that's why I mean of what's actually happening on the day-to-day -day versus what's happening on social media are two different things. Now, you know, on Shades, we like to, uh, <laughs> hi, Taylor. <laughs> Not even Taylor, it's my husband. <laughs> <laughs> hi, husband. <laughs> um, you know, how do we bridge the gap between social media and what we see there and what's going on the ground in the day-to-day -day practitioners? Because we need to be more open, but we need to definitely be hitting a larger audience. I've got a solution for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least we're trying with Do Better. That's like, you know, one of the big things that we're focusing on, um, especially for 2021, is trying to get more in with universities and businesses and not just around the, the topics that I focused on for the past few years and pretty much all of my career around just like better practice but helping uh, bring in information around the, the different things we've been talking about with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, obviously not just by myself, we are building, trying to build a team of people to help with all of those things. So um, I'm not saying we should be the only ones doing it, but I think that's what it's going to take is people who do have expertise in these areas, putting themselves out there, presenting at conferences like have been happening but going beyond that, right? So I started presenting on alternatives to escape extinction back in 2010. And uh, it's taken you know, a really long time to even see other people talk about it. And it wasn't until really like I started the Do Better movement that I started seeing more and more people do it. And then of course, Hanley thankfully started with his research mm -hmm. and his practice is so similar. So that's helping immensely. But it's definitely going to take multiple people, you know, connecting with and selling themselves to um, universities and businesses to help uh, grow those skill sets. Because hopefully someday it'll be part of our coursework and part of the training, but it certainly <laughs> isn't anytime soon. That's my, my opinion on it. All right, Tiana and Joe, what do you guys think? I think um, I think it's just going to take time and like for people in our age category that will continue to go to conferences to talk about it to um, to continue to um, disseminate information and um, make this their thing that like their passion to um, work on to 
uh, to make changes in our field. And just like Megan said, I mean, like she took some time and as she started in 2010 and now, you know, after so many years, if it's finally other people are talking about it. So I think it, that's what we're just going to have to do as a field. And isn't that anything that, I mean, just from previous history and looking back on history, that's what people had to do. And that's how we get anything changed is just to talk about it and continue to have those uncomfortable conversations with other people um, and make it a priority as well. So I think today together as a field, the more people we get on board, the, the more changes that will, that will happen um, faster too. The more people, the, the bigger voice we have, the faster changes will happen. And I agree. I think um, unfor it's unfortunate we're just going to have to continue to wait. We're going to have to continue. Um, and when I say continue to wait, it's just that the fact that this is a waiting, let's build up, let, let the change happen, mm -hmm. let more people find the need or let it, let it become a priority for more people. And it's just, and it's, and I say it, I guess, in a more humdrum kind of way because it's frustrating that we have that that these things have taken until 2020, you know, to in the the more recent events have really pushed for our um, our entity, our profession, our board to really make these changes happen. Um, so. We're just gonna have to continue to wait and continue to watch as people decide to grow, decide mm -hmm. to learn, to make that cognizant like switch of, hey, this matters. Let me make it a priority. Whereas there are other people who have always been like, hey, this matters. Let's go, you know, and now. <laughs> It, I guess is <laughs> I, I say it in in this way because it's like there there are people who have all who've always thought that these things matter, but now because of like the actual like the switch that has occurred within society like nationwide, now it's more urgent, you know. But mm -hmm. it's still this waiting game. Like we have to make sure like people are giving their like there are individuals that are able to be provide input in having that research that is now occurring and it's like well how long have we been servicing but let me not go down this yeah. rabbit hole of slight pessimist <laughs> <laughs> demeanor um, because it's just frustrating but um so just continue to waiting, continue, continue with waiting and hoping that more people will not be scared or timid with speaking up, that more people become comfortable with the uncomfortable because it's not like this, like the, the, it's not as if like making these changes are comfortable. So being okay with the lack of comfortability. 
I agree. I'm going to get off my soapbox. <laughs> well, this is why we have a podcast so we can be on our soapbox. <laughs> um, I like what you said, though, that people have to choose to want to change. You know, it's no longer, you know, Megan, we spoke earlier, somebody asked about different resources and how they felt about these different DEI trainings. Um, and on one of the me and Megan Miller will be presenting at AZ ABBA tomorrow on the 23rd. Um, one of the things that got brought up there was where are the resources? So one of the things that's telling me is that there is a huge population that are not seeing these trainings and these webinars. Um, and I like what you said is that it's also on a little bit of an independent um, effort. You got to put some self-effort into seeking out some of these trainings um, and some of these opportunities because it's no lo- no one can no longer say they're not there. Right. And there's even right. like, there's tons of free, not that it should be. You should, this is something you should put effort and resources into financially yeah. as well. But if, if you know, some people might now might be strapped for money with COVID and everything. Like it's, it's impossible to not find something. This is a totally different tangent, but just to, just to maybe help everyone feel slightly, maybe more positive about things. I, uh, um, my, I'm just going to go out there and say it. My husband had, uh, was supposed to have a diversity and equity inclusion training at work the other week. And it turns out they, uh, didn't they all talked about the differences in just thinking. So they were looking at diversity of thought. Okay. <laughs> and I was like, uh, what? Um, so we, we've, it's a long process over here, but, um, but it, so there are fields, I'm just going to throw that out there that don't even, that don't even recognize the importance of even that, like the bare basic aspect. And, and that is really sad to me because that shows how much work needs to be done as a society that I'm sure um, Tiana and Adrian, you're both well aware of. But like for me as a white person, I was like, holy, what? Um, so there's that. And um, just trying to point out, I like tried to point out like it was eight white people sitting in a room talking about how they didn't need diversity, equity, and inclusion training. So the reason I'm talking about this is as a behavior analyst, if you're listening to this podcast, if you're in a company where that's happening, speak up, please, because these trainings are needed. Even if you think our science is objective and like, there's not a reason why, like we interact with people from, with different mm-hmm. learned experiences, different lived experiences, different, all the things. And we need to know how to um, support and like work within different cultures. And the only way to do that is to engage in diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings. So if you're at a company where it's just a bunch of people who maybe don't have different life experiences, so maybe they don't have that perspective of like why this is important, uh, please be the person to speak out on that and make it happen. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why they've been, there's so much push for the BACB to do something or for ABAI or some of these different organizations because until people are forced to do something, if it's an option, like the ethics code was an option, (laughs) you know, 
very recently back. (laughs) Um, And up until they made it mandatory, a requirement is then when you started to see some of the change that I'm sure needed to happen back then. Um, So definitely there are going to be some companies that are going to be like your husband's company that, you know, and this was mandated, like it came down that all of the people at their different sites had to do one. And this was like their work, like, okay, I wasn't there. I wasn't in the room. I didn't hear the training, but that my interpretation is this was their workaround. Oh, you're going to make us do a diversity, equity, and inclusion training. We'll show you. We'll, we'll talk about diversity of thought. Yeah. And you know, <laughs> for those people who think that diversity, equity, and inclusion training is like reverse racism. Yeah. When I did a search, like I searched to the company and like what their policies are on it. Cause I'm like, please, I hope that the company at least, and of course they even had a freaking PowerPoint, like all sorts of stuff on like why it's important and how it makes their job better and like more effective and all of this stuff. And I'm like, so (laughs) what did y'all eight people think was happening here? You know? So, um, anyway, totally aside, we do have a couple comments from Facebook live that I, haven't had a chance to throw in. Um, Derek, Tony said for you, Tiana, when you were talking about waiting, um, you slash we aren't waiting though. You and others are actively making these changes through these discussions and many other activities, just trying to bring attention to the positive changes you and others are doing. And I wanted to say that too, and I totally like got on a different track. So um, especially with uh, the work you all are doing with creating I know Baba and Shades of ABA are separate, but the, like, I cannot wait for that conference and like all of the resources and everything that Baba has been putting out um, is a huge example of that. Thank you. (laughs) And then we had, um, back when we were talking about arrogance, uh, Marin said it makes it even more uncomfortable with respect to adult services. Like if that's how we're interacting with our clients when they're children, what skills are we learning to like respect them as adults, right? Yes. Yes. And let me, let me comment on that really, really quickly. Um, You know, we're, we're, we focus on kids, but when we, that part in the ethics code where it talks about dignity of your clients and making sure that we're maintaining that, that needs to be emphasized more with adult services. You know, I attended your um, talk last night uh, on Facebook Live about toileting. Okay, Tuesday. Tuesday. Mm-hmm. One of the, you know, one of the. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, there, you guys were talking about toileting and client dignity. Um, and I thought to my clients that I'm working on toileting with, and I'm like, well, you know, one of the things that was said was when they get older to not shame that. And I'm, and I am curious in adult services, I could imagine that that is where a lot of shame comes from and a lot of lack of dignity. If they're not toilet trained, um, how society wants them to be. So I definitely think arrogance in adult services is something that we should emphasize maybe even a little bit more than kids. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I love that comment. It's like, if we're not even, if we're not willing to listen to the perspectives of people who are actively reaching out to us and saying like, here, (laughs) here's, I'm I'm like giving you this emotional labor for free. Um, What makes anyone think that we're listening to the clients um, when they're adults as well? Yeah. 
That was a good one. What else do we got? Um, back, this was like way early on when we, <laughs> we were just having such good conversation. Uh, when we were talking about like the evolution of the ethics code and ethics requirements, um, Tija Salman was saying that um, she was at a presentation recently uh, that Dr. LeBlanc did on supervision. And I know you all had her and colleagues on for an interview. I'm so jealous. But <laughs> she was saying it was a really wonderful presentation because they were talking about, Dr. LeBlanc was talking about like the differences in the evolution of the supervision requirements. And it's funny because um, I have a lot of thoughts on it. So I'm just going to pause there and maybe Adrian, we can set up another <laughs> discussion around that or Joe, it'll just be a topic <laughs> we do. But basically the, the point of the training that Dr. LeBlanc was, um, you know, how many, many more requirements are in place now around supervision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we got a long way to go. <laughs> we got a long way to go. Um, but we we loved having this conversation. There is so many more conversations that can definitely come and, and break off. So me and Tiana, I'm going to speak for Tiana. We're definitely down for a part two. <laughs> um, but so we didn't get to talk about cancel culture. And I think you know, social media and the ethics code and cancel culture is a whole nother, you know, situation that we can talk about. But we always want to leave our audience with some solutions. So I do hope that everyone, even if it's just speaking up in their company or really looking at checking our own biases and how how does the ethics code support that? Um, I hope we, we do some inner works and some inner, inner growth. And so um, I thank you guys for coming on our show today and looking forward to any part twos, part threes, part fours, and infinite. <laughs> <laughs> thank this you, has Adrian. been fun. This has been very fun. Thank you, guys. I have a, a funny thing to tell you real quick, Adrian. I was hoping to do it at the beginning and I didn't have time for it. So Adrian and Joe and I have had some comments going on Facebook. Big 10 football starts on Saturday. <laughs> and I wore this shirt just for you, Adrian. It says, Revenge Tour canceled. And for those of you who don't know, that team up north that Adrian likes for some reason. That um, I love. <laughs> I Wait, are they even a team? They had a season. Oh, we're a team. <laughs> we are a team. If you haven't heard of us, you know, we bleed maize and blue. It's there. But okay. <laughs> They've been bleeding a lot. Yeah, you know. yeah, but last couple of years. Um, so for just like the backstory on this, the there was um, a few seasons ago when uh, Michigan lost to Penn State, Ohio State, uh, Michigan <laughs> State, yeah. and I forget one other Big Ten team. Um Wisconsin, maybe I don't remember, but so they had their revenge tour where uh, the coach had said, um, Harbaugh said, okay, we're, you know, this is our revenge tour year. Every team we lost to last year, we're beating this year. And they almost did it. They beat Penn state. They beat Michigan state. They beat whatever the other team was. It was Wisconsin. Wisconsin. And then they played <laughs> Ohio state and we canceled that revenge tour because <laughs> they have not beat us in a really long time. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just don't even really think whatever happens this season, cool, right? But take it with a grain of salt because it's not even like we have like some serious competition with this inner, inner 
conference games, but we can talk about that later. I thought <laughs> But nonetheless, Michigan is still the best team to ever live. So whatever. Who has more trophies? We do. Thanks. Okay, bye. So, somebody's <laughs> living in the past. <laughs> yeah, someone's living in the past. Tiana, right. do you like do you like any of the teams? I have no 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 preference. Nope. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not a part of. Mm-mm. She's like, Maybe. why are we talking about this? <laughs> uh, Big Ten football does start on Saturday. Yes. Very super excited. Yeah. Whatever team you root for, let's just. I went. I went to school with no football teams, so. Oh. Uh, <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> I mean, they have a football club now, but oh, that's no, good. There was no you can be I an honorary mean, Buckeye if you want. No, I think you're an honorary <laughs> no. Michigan because no. she's okay. so never Ohio. I'm sorry. <laughs> no. For people who don't know, Ohio and Michigan just like don't. We actually mm-hmm. had a war, like for real, back in the day. Yeah. There was a war. Yeah, it's historical. well thank you guys so much and thank you for the laughs and the um great conversation and we will be seeing you guys soon sounds good all right good thank you for having us guys have a good night